Let's remain standing as we hear from God's Word. That earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still more excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for, the, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part then I shall be known. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these, is love. Turn with me in your Bibles to First Corinthians thirteen. First Corinthians thirteen. We'll be looking at First Corinthians thirteen. Gifts for the church, part three. As we've been studying through Ephesians 4, talking about spiritual gifts, uh, decided to take a few lessons in here, now it's been three, uh, to talk a little bit more specifically about spiritual gifts, and because Paul only talks about a few of them there in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And so I wanted to, want us to think more about that, because when we get into verses 11 and 12 and talk about the equipping gifts, and then we get into verses 13, 13 through 16, we're going to talk about the serving gifts, and I want us to be thinking in terms of what these gifts are, and what does that mean for me? What do I need to be doing? And so, uh, some have been very faithful in exercising their gifts, and others aren't sure what your gift is, or what should you be doing? And so, I hope for these next several weeks, as we work our way through spiritual gifts and Ephesians 4... Uh, 1 through 16, that we come away with a better understanding of spiritual gifts and that the Holy Spirit will light a fire under each one of us to get us going and inside of us to get us serving and to serve in the ways that build up His church. And so that's our goal. And, and so this morning we'll conclude a, an initial look at spiritual gifts, and at a very high level, there's so much more we could say. Even, I'm going to talk about why temporary gifts are temporary and what the Bible says about that. And we could talk a long time on that, but I don't think that we need to do that right now. So, 
We're not going to go into that in much detail, but gifts for the church, part three. Childhood is a time for establishing basic functions. It's a time for learning to walk and to talk, to exercise self-control, to be able to function in society and perform work and so on. Childhood is all about working toward a goal. And that goal is adulthood. Adulthood should be all about serving. So once you have those basic skills and abilities developed in childhood, we expect children when they enter adulthood to be using those and to use them to serve, to focus on serving God, serving family, serving neighbor. Everything that they do should fall under one of those ways of service. So childhood is a time for laying a foundation. Adulthood is a time for building on that foundation. When explaining spiritual gifts, this is one of the pictures that Paul uses to help do that. This idea of childhood and adulthood. He wants to help us see that there would be a time for laying a foundation And there would be a time for building on that foundation. The foundation has been laid. So, what I hope we take away today is this. Let us serve with confidence. Let us serve with confidence, knowing that God has provided everything we need to build upon the church's completed foundation. So the foundation has been laid. We need to be building on that foundation. He's given us everything we need to do that so that we, through the power of the Spirit, can build upon that foundation. Well, I want to talk first about how God planned for some of the gifts to cease. And there's two basic camps in this, and I just want to say up front that within those two basic camps, there are uh, different sub-views, if you will, or variations on those views. So, you know, if you, uh, as you, you might recognize, well, I know somebody who, who would fall into that, but they, they believe something a little bit differently, and, and that's okay. I'm not going to go into all the different um, variations, but talk about these two main views. Cessationists <clears throat> believe that some of the spiritual gifts have ceased. They ceased to be in operation after the apostolic era, the first century when the apostles had died. Continuationists, on the other hand, believe that all of the gifts are still in operation today. So, two very different perspectives on spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches that some of the gifts will cease. And Paul mentions there specifically prophecy, knowledge, that is the, the gift of knowledge, and tongues. Okay, and I look at those as examples. They serve as examples of all the temporary gifts because really what he says there about them does apply and has in history applied to all of those that we have labeled as temporary gifts. But the debate is on when will they cease. So there is no debate, if you take the Scripture seriously, on the fact that they will cease. And we're going to see First Corinthians 13 is very clear. The debate is when. When will they cease? 
And again, there are a variety of views. And when you look at those two main groups that I was talking about, the uh, cessationists and the continuationists, they're even kind of overlapping and mixed views and it gets confusing. And I'm going to try to keep it just straightforward and simple. Know that there are variations and if you hold one of those variations or you have questions about it, we can talk about it later, but I didn't want to go into all that detail this morning. Okay. Two ideas on when those gifts will cease. Some believe that no gift will cease before the eternal state. So before we enter eternity, they believe that all of the gifts will still be here, or maybe most of the gifts will be here until the eternal state begins. And then they would cease. And as we read, love would continue on through eternity is the way they would look at it. Others believe that some gifts ceased by the end of the first century. That would be the cessationists I referred to. Now, so just so you know what our church... This isn't me going rogue, okay? Our doctrinal statement teaches that some gifts have ceased. And quoting from that, with the New Testament revelation now complete, in other words, the New Testament canon has been complete, we have all the scriptures we need that God wants us to have, scripture becomes the sole test of the authenticity of a man's message. And remember, you, you probably can hear things that we've been talking about the last few weeks, right? There's that authenticating, okay, and confirming signs. Confirming signs of a miraculous nature are no longer necessary to validate a man or his message. And then we add this. Miraculous gifts can even be counterfeited by Satan so as to deceive even believers. And so there's a, that's a warning that we need to keep in mind. People say, well, you say they've ceased, but I know churches where they have tongues all the time. We need to understand that... Those can be counterfeited, and some of them can be counterfeited by Satan. So just because there is a gift and supposedly an operation doesn't mean that it actually is from the Holy Spirit. We believe that the foundational sign and revelatory gifts were temporary. They have fulfilled their purpose. They have ceased operating. And Paul does tell us when they will cease. Look with me, 1 Corinthians 13, and I'll read verses 8 through 10. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And he's using two different Greek words here. In other words, in the way he, he phrases this is that something, someone from the outside will stop them, will put them out of business, if you will. They will be done away. If there are tongues... This is a different verb in a different way he states it. They will cease. In other words, they will die out on their own is the idea. Okay. If there is knowledge, this is the, again the first verb, it will be done away. That is from the outside, someone will put a stop to it. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the teleos... And I'm going to use the Greek word here, okay? Because we're going to try to figure out what does that mean. When the teleos comes, the partial will be done away. So, some gifts will be done away, and some gifts will cease. That much is clear. 
what isn't clear, at least at first glance, as to what Paul means by teleos, when the teleos comes. Now, most English translations have something like when the perfect comes. Now, the problem with that, perfect is okay if you, it depends on how you understand the English word perfect. Because a lot of times in English, probably most of the time in English, when we think of the idea of perfect, what do we think? We think something is without flaw. We think something like moral perfection. Okay, and that is why it leads a person's mind to, well, the only state of perfection that's yet to come is going to be the eternal state. So even if there is going to be a millennium, it's not going to be perfect without any flaw there. You see, so that's why the the mind will then go to the eternal state and why folks who hold that, this is where what they base that on. But teleos is not used in the New Testament for moral perfection, and that isn't even what it means. It doesn't refer to moral perfection. It doesn't refer to without flaw. There are other words in Greek that do refer to that. This is not one of them. Instead, teleos is used to describe something reaching a state of completion. It's used of becoming full-grown, like becoming mature, as in adulthood. Something that has reached its goal. So if you think of perfect in the sense that we sometimes, though not often, use it, let's say that you teach your daughter how to sew, sew a dress, and she gets to the place where she can do that well. Or you teach your son to build a cabinet or a bookcase, and he gets to where he can do that well. What you might say is once they've completed and they show you their finished product, as you say, ah, perfect. Okay. You don't mean, at least I hope you don't, mean that there's no flaw in it. Because there's no one, even the most skilled uh, seamstress or seamstress or craftsman, none of them, aside from God, can do something without a flaw. So you could still pick it apart and find a flaw. You don't mean it is without flaw. You mean that they have come to the place where they can do this now successfully and do it well. They've reached a state of completion, of maturity in learning how to do one of these skills, for example. That is the idea in the Greek word teleos. And since Paul used teleos here, he's speaking of a state of completion like reaching adulthood. Okay? He's contrasting the state of the early church where he, in verse 9, says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. Let me um, read those again. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the teleos comes, the partial will be done away. And so the early church, that first century, the apostolic era, is what he's talking about when he says in part. Now, that's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. When your child is learning one of these skills, you don't say, well, you know, you're morally corrupt because you can't so address well yet. That's not true. So being partial, it's not bad. It's just not there yet. It's incomplete. 
It's in process. A foundation is being laid. Those gifts that provide the partial, verse 10, he says, will be done away. So partially revealed truth is the opposite of completely revealed truth. Or you said the other way, completely revealed truth is the opposite of partially revealed truth. You see, he's contrasting those two. He's saying during the, the New Testament era that he was in, and this was still fairly early in that time period, especially when you think about the revealing of truth through the canon of scriptures as more and more books are being written. This is still fairly early. And he's thinking in terms of we're in this foundation stage called that that's childhood. And you know, if your child is two, you shouldn't tell them, you know, stop talking like a baby. You know, stop act stop acting like a toddler. Stop acting like a child. They are a child. That's what they're supposed to do. Okay? Now, it's when they're an adult and they're, you know, baby talking or something that you then say stop acting childish. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with a child being a child. And so he's describing that first century, that foundation period. And so one of the chief things he has in mind, because of the gifts he's chosen here to mention, the three, which I think are representative for all the the temporary gifts, the revelatory gifts, the gifts where God is revealing truth to the church, prophecy, knowledge, and tongues. Okay, But I think he has in mind more than just the... New Testament canon, the completion of the canon. Uh, I've often said that, and I don't think it's wrong to say that what he has in mind here is the completion of the New Testament canon. But that's the key element of what I think he has in mind, a little bit broader idea. If you look at his letters, especially for uh, Ephesians, from chapters 2 and on, he talks about the foundation of the church. And I think that is what he has in mind, but because he's using revelation-type gifts, those that reveal truth from God, the chief thing he's thinking of is the completion of the New Testament canon. It's a key, key component of the foundation. That is, that is where we get apostolic truth. Okay, so remember Ephesians 2.20 talks about Jesus is the cornerstone of the church and then the rest of that foundation are the apostles and prophets. In other words, it's the truth that they delivered to the church. Okay, and then that rounded out, that completed out the foundation, apostolic truth. The completion of the New Testament canon. What we mean by that, the canon, that is, which books belong in the Bible, in the New Testament section of the Bible. There's an Old Testament canon, which of those count that, that God wanted in Scripture, because there, you know, there's other people in broader Christendom that say, well, no, there's some other books that ought to be in there, and we say, no, they don't, and we won't go through that. But there's a, a way that the church has recognized which ones belong in the canon, the, the, those that are, have been verified by the apostles, as belonging in Scripture or not. That's what we mean by canon. All the truth we need about Jesus 
and the related truths, the related theology, doctrine, scripture, it's all been given and it's all been verified by the apostles and prophets. We have everything. We no longer need the temporary gifts because the foundation was laid. And let's think for a minute about that foundation, that broader idea of what was accomplished by the end of the first century. First, the, the primary thing, all the New Testament truth was delivered to the saints. And everything else hinges on that. It's primary. And that's why I think it's okay if you say, well, the gift ceased when once we had all the New Testament that we needed. Okay? That, that God intended to give us. Because this, this is key, and everything else hangs on it. Because those scriptures then, like I, was, I walked us through real high level through Acts, where those different groups in that time period, first Jews, and then Gentiles, and Samaritans, and John's disciples, and even Paul as an apostle, those gifts authenticated that, okay, Paul is an apostle. But all these different groups belong in the one church. You see, and so that's why Luke walks us through that. And he says, okay, they were baptized with the Spirit. They spoke in tongues. Because each of those groups, he's showing that, no, we're not going to have a Jewish church and a Gentile church and a Samaritan church and, you know, the apostles of John, the Baptist church. We're not going to have that. It's one church. We're all brought in. We've all received the, the, the one Spirit. Also, Acts tells us about how churches were planted and strengthened. That is part of the foundation. The apostles saw to that. Leaders were appointed in those churches. And we could say even, how do we then after that go about appointing leaders? Well, they gave us that too, right? And then church practices were established. I like how Paul says in 1 Timothy, you know, a little further on into the letter, he says, you know, so that you may know how you should conduct yourself, how we should conduct ourselves in church. You know, it's just what do we do? What are the things that we do? They gave us all of that. That is the foundation. Now, another reason why teleos isn't pointing to some period of perfection, which would really be the eternal state, is that it misses the analogy that Paul is using. So look at verse 11. He explains, he gives an illustration here. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child, and that's not wrong. He's not saying that was a bad thing because he was a child. But he says, when I became a man, when I became an adult, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully as I also have been fully known. The state of childhood there is a picture of the early church before the foundation was complete. Found, you know, the cornerstone was already set, that's Jesus. And the apostles and prophets of the New Testament were finishing out that foundation during that first era. If we viewed adulthood there as the eternal state, then Paul's analogy would mean that people die as soon as they reach adulthood. So it's like we we have this childhood state that goes all the way through now 2,000 years and counting, and however much longer it's going to be, and that's all childhood. 
And adulthood is when Jesus returns, boom, eternal state. Okay? So it'd be like we're those, some of those insects that, you know, they're, you know, a caterpillar or whatever, and then they become an adult, in, adult insect, lay eggs and die. Okay, a lot of them that happens that way, right? Adult lay eggs die. You know, and that's that, but that's not the human picture. We're not insects. Okay? And so it doesn't reflect his analogy. He used adulthood as the contrast to childhood because adulthood is the completion of the maturing process in a person. Typically, adulthood lasts a lot longer than childhood. Depends on your definition of what era you live in, whether childhood is 12 years, 13 years, 18 years, or, you know, adulthood typically is much longer than that, several times longer than that. That's the picture that he chose. That means that this teleos is a state of completion. It's a state of adulthood which lasts for the rest of the church age. That is after the foundation was laid. So you have the childhood period there where the foundation is being laid. They didn't have the whole New Testament yet. They didn't have, up until you get closer to the end, all of church polity and everything. This is how we are to do church and, and how to appoint leaders. They didn't have that early on, and so they needed people who were apostles and prophets and who had gifts of knowledge and wisdom, tongues, to either authenticate or to even provide information they needed until they had the New Testament. Paul said he knew in part because all revelation hadn't been given when 1 Corinthians was written. 1 Corinthians was written very early. When you look at the scope of when were the New Testament books written, 1 Corinthians was at the very toward the beginning. It's the sixth book probably that was written out of 27. We still have a long ways to go. And, and so they needed these temporary gifts. It was still early. Now, to help us solidify this a little bit, there's a couple questions that a continuationist, you, they'll ask you and, and kind of push back and say, wait a minute, I don't agree with that, with the cessationist perspective. And they'll say, they'll ask a couple of questions. Why would Paul tell them at the end of chapter 12, verse 31, which was the beginning of our scripture reading today, for the Corinthians to earnestly desire the greater gifts? Prophecy is one of those he's thinking about. Why would he tell them that? And then also, why would he open chapter 14 and close chapter 14 by saying that they should desire to prophesy? Okay, well, let's talk about that. So if these gifts, if those gifts have ceased, why would he say that? Well, first, and what what Paul's doing is he's responding to two different issues there. They're related. First, he exhorted them to seek the greater gifts that, at the end of chapter 12. Okay, The greater gifts are those that are intelligible without needing an interpreter. Because remember that tongues was the, the, the gift that was being counterfeited and abused in Corinth more than anything. Okay, 
And so they had people there that were just pushing everybody. Like, you know, you've probably run into folks today who do that. They're like, tongues is everything. You know, everybody needs to speak in tongues, even though Paul said not everybody will speak in tongues. Okay, and so they're, they're pushing, pushing, pushing for that. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And Paul said, now wait a minute. If there's legitimate tongues that the Holy Spirit is really producing, we need to have those. But I want you to desire those gifts that are intelligible because with tongues, it's a different language that you don't understand. So if there's not an interpreter, then you're not going to even know. And that's what was apparently happening. Either they were counterfeiting it and just making things up and saying, or for whatever reason, they were speaking something that maybe the Spirit had given them, but there was no interpreter present. And they were speaking it, and Paul said, no, 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 that's not okay. If there's not an interpreter present, then you need to be quiet. Why? Because it doesn't do any good. It doesn't build anybody up. And Paul said the greater gifts are those that are intelligible without without needing an interpreter. And that fits in with what he would say in chapter 13, the more excellent way, the way of love. Because what does love do? Love builds up. It builds up others. Love is other-centered. Because there were some apparent problems with those who were the tongue speakers in Corinth who were abusing that gift. And then talking about, oh, it, you know, tongues edify myself. I, you know, I edify myself. And Paul says, that's not the way of love. The way of love is you're seeking to edify others. <clears throat> Second, desiring the temporary gifts was the right attitude for the early church during this foundational stage. As I said, this is very early in the history of the church, especially when you the history of the New Testament Scriptures being given. So this is the right attitude. What was going on... See, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul shifts to not just things he had... problems he'd heard about that he addressed, chapters 1 through 6, but in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote... In other words, they had a list, they wrote to him, and so now he's... Checking off that list. He's going through one by one. One of those was were problems with spiritual gifts, particularly tongues. And most likely what they were thinking, because he's going to say, he's going to tell them to don't forbid speak, uh, people speaking in tongues at the end of chapter 14. Apparently, some of the folks there who had written were saying, should we just get rid of tongues altogether? Should we just shut them down completely? Because it's causing division in our church. They're being abused. They're being counterfeited. Should we just shut it down? And Paul said, no, it's too early for that. As he says there in chapter 13, verse 10, they're going to die out on their own. Should you just let them die out on their own? And I've given you in chapter 14 regulations. So if somebody wants to speak in tongues, there's not an interpreter, they need to be quiet. All things need to be done orderly. Right, as he would say. And so his point is, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The Thessalonians, their epistles were written even before the First Corinthians was written. So it's even earlier. They had the same idea about prophecy. Because apparently prophecy was being misused, abused, counterfeited. And they just wanted to shut it down. And Paul said, no, no, you can't do that. Basically, it's too early. 
they will be ceased. The Holy Spirit, when He's done with those gifts, once the apostles have done all their work, they'll die, those gifts will go away. Once we don't need the gift of prophecy anymore, He'll stop that gift. Same with tongues, miracles, signs, all those. The Holy Spirit will stop them. You see, God was not done with those gifts yet. In that foundation stage, believers should have desired the temporary gifts to be exercised if they're truly exercised or given by the Holy Spirit. If it is truly the Holy Spirit, and that's where those guidelines that he would give. That's a way. So if somebody says, no, I just I just can't help it. I have to speak in tongues. Nobody here can interpret it, but I have to. Okay, you know it's not from the Holy Spirit then. You know, or if people are prophesying. And, and one guy has a prophecy from the Holy Spirit and he's prophesying. And then some other guy jumps up and starts, you know, talking over him. You know that's not from the Spirit. Okay? Because he says you have control over that. And if you don't have control, then it's not the Holy Spirit. They should have desired the proper usage of those gifts as long as they were needed. So that's why he would say, earnestly desire them. And some continuationists will say, well, everybody ought to, ought to try to speak in tongues and everybody ought to have prophecy. But yet Paul said, not everybody has tongues, has prophecy. And it's not going to be that way. There's not one gift that everybody will have. He gives a variety and he gives them to different people in different measure. Okay, so I wanted to, we needed to open that can of worms and, and tackle some of the worms. And so now I'm going to put the lid on it. And if you want to talk about those worms some more, you let me know. I'm happy to. Um, but what I want to do is now say, okay, we, we've talked about that foundation stage. And I want to get us to start thinking just a little bit in the direction of, okay, so what do we do now? If the foundation has been laid, if some of the gifts have ceased, now what? You know, John, you talked about there was a time for laying a foundation and a time for building on that foundation. What do we do about building on the foundation? And so I want to start in the few minutes we have left to talk about that, just to get us started. And basically where we're going with this is, as we get back into Ephesians 4, in, in verses 11 and 12, as I said, we're, we're going to be talking about those equipping gifts that prepare, they equip everyone, that is all of you and me, to do the work of the ministry, okay? And so what's going to come out of this is all of you are going to become ministers, okay? It's not just your pastors, okay? Which puts a lot of burden on you, right? A responsibility on you. You've got to get to work. And I want us to be thinking about that now. I want us to be thinking, okay, well, what should I be doing? What are the options out there? And and as I said, you know, some have been faithfully serving, and and I'm not pretending that you haven't been. But we all need either an encouragement, if we've been faithful, to keep being faithful. And others, it's time to start. Or time to take it up a notch. Okay? Okay. So let's talk now about building on this foundation. The foundation that was laid by those temporary gifts. 
I've taken the ongoing gifts, those that are not temporary, at least not at this point, uh, that will last to the end of the church age. I've divided them into two gifts. You saw that a couple weeks ago uh, on the slides that I gave you then. There, There are equipping gifts and there are serving gifts. And I'm going to go into these in greater detail. I just want to whet your appetite right now and and get the conversation started, get you thinking about, praying about, how will God use me in the church to serve and to build up the church? So there's equipping gifts and serving gifts. Let's talk first about equipping gifts just briefly. They develop and prepare believers to do the work of the ministry. More on that next time. Our doctrinal statement says this, The only gifts in operation today are those non-revelatory equipping gifts given for edification. And there we call them all equipping gifts, but uh, I'm dividing those into two, equipping and serving. Okay, Equipping gifts. First, evangelists. These are the ones that are still ongoing. Evangelists, they might be sent out by a church to preach the gospel to the lost. They may operate or serve within a church and preach the gospel to the lost. And so we have one of the, the you know, the, the former group there of an evangelist that has been sent out, okay? That's, missionaries are typically, they're evangelists that are being sent out to preach the gospel and, and do other and serve in other ways. Then there are those who are within a church that have the gift of evangelism, and, and, but they also are, are preaching to the lost, Pastor, like a shepherd, really pastor means shepherd, like shepherds who shepherd sheep, these are men who serve as leaders of people. Shepherding involves leading, feeding, that is on the word, guarding, protecting, caring for the flock. And we do what shepherds do. They protect the sheep, they guard the sheep, they care for the sheep, feed the sheep, lead them. Teachers. They provide explanation and application of divine revelation that's recorded in Scripture. So basically, what a teacher is going to do is take what was given by the apostles and the prophets, the Scriptures, and they're going to explain that to people, help apply that to people's lives. Okay, that's what teachers do in different ways that can manifest itself, preaching, teaching like Sunday school, teaching Bible studies, discipling, counseling. Those are manifestations of the gift of teaching. And and you'll see that some of these gifts overlap or the ministry you have probably is going to be more than just one of these gifts, typically. You know, so like you have the gift of teaching. Well, what comes necessarily with teaching is exhortation. Okay, and and so I, I don't know that I can say, you know, as gospel truth necessarily, but I don't see how you could have the gift of teaching and not have exhortation because they really have to go together, you see. And like a pastor, pastors are required to be able to teach. Okay, They may do it like I'm doing here from the pulpit off most Sundays, or you may do it in discipleship, counseling, Bible studies. But they have to be able to teach, so a pastor has to also be able to teach. Okay, So these gifts typically go together, a lot of them. Okay, those are equipping gifts. Again, more on that next time. Okay? Serving gifts, the other category of those that are still in existence. They meet the needs of the church body. They show care for others. They help to grow the church. To grow the church, as we're going to see in, in Ephesians 4, 13 through 16, grow the church in unity, grow the church in Christ-likeness, to grow the church in maturity. What are some of those? 
first one, helps or serving. That's empowerment by the Holy Spirit to serve others. It means to take up someone's burden, to come to their aid, to assist someone. Sometimes it may be a brief time of assisting them, and it may be a time where there's more extensive help that is given, especially when you're helping the weak. Another one, administrations or leading. John MacArthur said that this person has the ability to make wise decisions, to mobilize, to motivate, and direct others toward an objective. So there's this aspect of leading again. So, you know, your pastors are going to have this gift as well, but to different degrees. Okay? And then others are going to have the gift of leading or administrations uh, even beyond uh, the pastors. Okay? Exhortation. This person exhorts encourages, comforts, consoles. So don't think in, of, of exhortation as just this kind of like, you know, you're pointing your finger and, you know, trying to get people to get with it, you know. It's not just that. It sometimes is that. But the word leans more toward comforting and consoling, encouraging. Okay, so it's, it's all of that. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. It also... Uh, can be someone who befriends those who are lonely or outcast. Barnabas did that with Paul. You know, it's kind of like, you know, nobody wanted to touch Paul with a 10-foot pole, right? Because it's like, okay, he's been killing all of us, and, we, you know. And Barnabas had, he was, you know, son of encouragement. He had the gift of encouragement. And he's like, come on, Paul. Take you into my arms and get you, you know, to where everybody's good with you now and realize that you really are saved of God and used of God. Giving. This person gives sacrificially. And so much so that the idea is that there's a giving of themselves in their gift. You know, while yes, they may give financially more than more than other people do, God may prepare them to do that. But there's a giving of themselves in it. It's not just writing of checks. I mean, yeah, it can mean that. It includes that. But they give themselves in it. So there's the sacrificial element in their giving. And they are to give with liberality. Showing mercy. These, they carry out acts of mercy for someone in need. This could be someone who's sick, someone dying. Those who are vulnerable, like widows, orphans, people who are oppressed. Those who are in danger. People are in some sort of distress. Okay, They need mercy. And, and you know, we all are told to be merciful. That should be a character trait of ours. But these are people, and all of these gifts, where the Holy Spirit uses them in a, in a more particular way, in a more intense way, if you will, than the average Christian. Okay? And then hospitality. As I've said, it's not clear if this is a spiritual gift or not. Uh, I'm going to treat it as a maybe. Um, it's not hard to consider it one. I mean, it seems to fit with all of them, and it falls into a couple of the passages on spiritual gifts, but just barely outside of those passages. So maybe is, maybe isn't. But um, some people are used to a greater extent by the Holy Spirit in showing hospitality. So it may be a gift. Okay, so all that said, let's start conversations about how God has gifted each member in the church. So if... if for example, if you're a member of this church, he has given you gifts, even if, you know, you're 10 or 12, if he's added you to this church, you, he's given you gifts and expects you to use them. So let's start talking about, thinking about, how might God have gifted me? 
And, and even if you have a gift that you've been using faithfully, are there some other ways that God may want to use you uh, in some new ways? Uh, I personally believe that your giftedness can change with the changing needs of your church or if you go to another church. So if you go to another church, like you know, some churches, uh, they you know, have lots and lots of capable teachers. But then you go to another church and, you know, there's that one guy, poor soul, who's trying to do it all. Because that's all there, there isn't anybody else yet capable of teaching. It's not his fault. You know, he's trying to develop teachers. But then you go to that church and maybe that God's now going to use you as a teacher when he used you in different ways in, in the previous church. So, um, and then as the, the needs of the church shifts, okay, so maybe, and I'll just because this is close to home for me, teaching, maybe that shifts a little bit so that, you know, you might not preach every Sunday if you're like me, and then maybe, you know, you get to the place where now the needs are, we, we have more counseling needs, and, and there's, you know, someone else is going to be do, doing more of the Sunday morning preaching, that kind of thing, right? So you see, as things shift and the needs shift, the Holy Spirit, see, He's sovereign. Those passages talk about how He is sovereign. He decides what gifts are given. We don't decide, you're like, oh, I want that one. You, know, you might, and that's fine, but he might not give it to you. That's not how it works. He decides what the church needs, and then he decides to give people gifts, and then he gives those people to the church. So over the next few weeks, let's consider how each of us can be used by God to build on the foundation. That's the period we're in. In church history, the foundation has been laid. Childhood is in the past. The church now is an adult, if you will. And we're members of that. How is he going to use each of us to build on that foundation? So we'll keep talking about this for the next few weeks. As we come to the Lord's Supper, I want us to think a little bit about Ephesians 4 that I've been touching on. We looked through verses 7 through 10 already uh, in our study. But thinking there about how... Remember, he, he talks about when he introduces gifts, it's a really interesting way. And I, for me, it was real unexpected. I didn't expect him to say, you know, that Jesus, you know, he died and was buried so he who descended also ascended and he says it you know different ways and just to get make sure you get the point you know so the one who ascended had first descended and all that so but you remember where he went with that is that when he rose from the dead and and then he ascended to heaven he says he gave gifts to men you know it's a beautiful picture and I want us to focus on that because here at the table, because at the table we remember the death of our Lord, but with that death came his burial. Into the uttermost parts of the earth, Paul said there in Ephesians 4. But then there's the resurrection. You can't have that with Christ. With that death and burial, there's going to be a resurrection. He had to rise again. And through that, he was victorious. He set us free. He gave us life. And then when He ascended to heaven, He gave us gifts. He was that victor king coming back from the battle. And he was t 
take, he had taken captives. He had already freed other captives, that's us, and he took captives of our enemies. And he's parading them, showing that he's victorious. And from the spoils of war and all the surrounding kings, the picture of them bringing gifts of tribute to that victorious king, our, our victorious king, the Lord Jesus, he then said, I'm going to give gifts to my people. And he sovereignly has given us gifts. But they're not gifts for us to just sit back and enjoy. They're gifts to get us busy, to get us serving, to be building on the foundation. There's going to be a day when we get to enjoy all the wonder of all of this. We get a little bit of enjoyment now, but there should be a lot of work going on right now because we're building on that foundation. And that's because of what He did at the cross. He secured all of that. He secured the, the, the rights to all those gifts that He gives to us. It was through His death and resurrection that He was able then to send His Holy Spirit. And that Spirit gives us these gifts and He is the one who energizes these gifts and makes them effective. All because of the death and resurrection of our Lord. Let's remember that as we partake of the Lord's table.